We had Pastor Mark read all uh, 41 verses uh, because I thought it would be good for, for us to have a moment to, to meditate on the whole of this text uh, on purpose. We're going to handle this text in two different sermons. Today we're going to seek to get through verses 1 to 12. And um, it's a critical passage for so many reasons, but I'd like to start this morning a little bit differently than I normally do, and I would just like to, to offer uh, some reasons by way of explanation and maybe a little practical application as to why this passage is so important for us uh, in understanding Jesus Christ as the Son of God and why it's so important for us personally, okay? And uh, so I think this is a passage that uh, certainly all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. For us all, for all time, but I think there's some really unique applications here, even for kids today, um, uh, for uh, saints of all ages. So nonetheless, let, let's dive in here uh, with a little bit more broad approach, and then we'll certainly specifically unpack uh, each principle and truth here in these first 12 verses. From the broadest look, um, this passage stands in a great contrast to the coming chapter, uh, chapter 10, where Jesus Christ presents himself uh, as the good shepherd. It seems now for weeks we've been talking about the, uh, the onslaught of the religious leaders who were more hirelings than they were sheep. They've stepped up their game and as we study chapter to chapter in their desire to arrest seas or even seeking to kill Jesus. And this whole chapter is one last look at the religious unbelief that takes place sometime after the week of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is, of his own words, self-identifying as the light of the world, again in this text. Pastor Steve did a tremendous job explaining what that meant in relationship to the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, but this is sometime after that. But nonetheless, it's, it's good for us to see one last deep dive of unbelief uh, into the... Uh, into the, the, the life and character of Jesus, that they might expose themselves for who they really are, okay? Coming from a little bit more narrow perspective, this passage would teach us to remain aware of gospel opportunity, for it can come from anywhere at any time for me and for you. We'll discuss that in our first point. Sharpening our pencil a little bit more, it's a little bit more narrow space here. These opportunities to, to do the works of God that Jesus discusses here. We will find out that these works are actually defined moments planned out for you and for me by God himself. Each day we live and understand how God works in our lives. We do 
submit ourselves to the reality that he superintends all of our existence, including those small moments that he grants to us by his grace to actually do what the text reminds us to do this morning, which is actually the works of God that he has in his calendar, in his schedule for you to do, although they may not be in yours. These deeds, these deeds specifically designed for you and not for me and for me and not for you are only deeds that you can do, God's works, and we need to do them so that we would mirror the life of our Savior who lived as light of the world to do the works of his Father. At times there can be opposition when you take advantage of that divine moment, if you will, but that's okay. That even may settle your heart if you think about it. The works of God that promote Jesus as the Son of God aren't always going to be met with a smile and a friendly hug. Maybe we can consider this. Does the passage teach us the why God allows certain struggles and hardships to enter anyone's life in particular? Most of us here today are generally healthy. You were born with all your physical capacities intact, so to speak. You've lived a life with a certain amount of grace and mercy from God. Just because you have two legs, two arms, two eyes, two ears, and you're generally in good shape physically, emotionally, mentally. When we look at this world, it's even more obvious when we see those who struggle when they don't have the quality of life and enjoy the quality of life that most of us do. We even look at third world countries where this poverty of life has inflicted physical hardship beyond description. And when we see it, we're devastated. We just want to help. 501c3 organizations, they really, they really take on millions and billions of dollars, don't they? When they plead to common grace care of people like you and me to, to give donations through their pleas for help for these hurting people across the world. But I believe the passage does answer why in God's sovereignty he allowed some to be born blind and maybe without their functional physical capabilities. The answer is given by Jesus and it's in verse three and we'll unpack that later this morning. But Jesus says, it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In the blind man. You see, when the situation is so dire, it draws our sympathetic hearts and eyes to consider the depths of the discouraging reality anyone, any one person can endure. And so when Jesus interacts with that life and pulls them from the deepest depths of discouragement life can offer to new life and purpose for living in him, he does the works of his Father as the light of the world. And my friends... All then who looked with pity before now gaze with glory and amazement 
But the miraculous life, the formerly afflicted person now lives with brand new energy, joy, and divine purpose. Something else I think we can observe about the whole chapter as we uh, approach more theological understandings as as to the why of chapter 9. It's about a miracle, but the miracle only really takes up two verses in the real estate of 41 verses. It's an amazing miracle. But why did so little time investment, but why so little time in the investment of the performance of the miracle and 39 other verses given to help us understand what's really going on and the purposes of God is demonstrated through Jesus Christ towards the minds and the hearts of religious unbelief in the text. I believe God's teaching us all something of great importance. People who will understand God and the person of the Lord Jesus all go through a mercy process, a patient process that God allows for them, each one of them. We should never underestimate God's ability to touch, teach, remind, convict, and love those who need Jesus as he enacts his drawing process to bring them to himself. All people are created in God's image, and God the Spirit is omnipresently working in each life and in each circumstance, demonstrating his mercy over and over again to everyone who needs Jesus. Romans 1 is true. There is a defense there as to why all are left without excuse before God, but in this passage before us, we'll see how intimately God works and how he even uses us in the same way to influence people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We need to be okay with the sphere of influence the Lord gives even us to live out our lives for him in this way. We'll keep it simple. While you're living your life for him, just know that the Lord is carrying his weight of influence in people's lives, and and that's okay. You do the works he's given you to do while he does what only he can do. Not all will follow him. That's up to him. You do what Jesus says in the passage and take comfort that God will break the bread of your obedience in his name as you too do the works the Lord's given you to do. Diving deeper into the main theological point of the passage, I want to take your attention to verse 39. This is really the the main theological point Jesus is making in the whole passage. It's towards the end. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. We already know what Jesus has said in chapter 3 and verse 17, that he did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. So we must know more completely what he's saying here in verse 39. Everything Jesus does, all the works, are the doing of the will of his Father. We've seen, we've heard him say that over and again. Jesus is the divine force of God on earth as he is the very narration of God to man. Each and everything he does and says is an act of grace towards mankind. 
all the words and works of Christ are undeserved gifts to all of us, and each person must do something with them. In this sense, God brings the opportunity to man to decide. He works, Jesus gives, he provides, he draws, he graces the world with his goodness, and the world has a response that they're to make, a decision to endure. In this sense, Jesus brings judgment. He brings them to a moment they need to discern, to decide. D.A. Carson quotes Boltman, who says, in order to be grace, it must uncover sin. He who resists this binds himself to his sin, and so through the revelation, sin for the first time becomes definitive. Jesus comes for those the text says in verse 39, who may not see, they're spiritually blind, so that they may see. And those who see, they think they see, they think they understand, may become blind, what he's saying here, confirmed in their own unbelief. That's verse 39. Five times in chapter 9, the religious unbelief makes definitive false statements about Jesus and what happens to those who believe in him. Verse 16, 22, 24, 29, and 34. They boldly proclaim that they see and understand, but they are just confirming their own blindness when they make those statements. In verse 39, John is saying of those who would believe, there's a certain poverty of spirit if you're going to truly understand who Jesus is, as this blind man came to understand at the end of the chapter, there needs to be a certain poverty of spirit that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 5 and verse 3, an abasement of personal religious pride and a candid acknowledgement of spiritual blindness that are indispensable characteristics of the person who receives spiritual sight, true revelation at the hands of Jesus, Carson says. This is the ultimate theological reason for this miracle. For the physically blind man, we'll see the next time we're together in this passage, God did the work of his father to cause him to see physically first. And sometime later than spiritually. It's still a work of God that Jesus did, although it was not immediately salvific in its reality. But all that God mercifully does among all that traverse this earth is so that they might receive in time spiritual sight, that they would be born again been an amazing amount, a record amount, as you know, of snowfall in the western Rockies. and It's not hard to go through your social media and just see um, the waterfalls <laughs> really that are, that are just flowing at, at a most torrent 
pace in the history of these states and these parks because the snow's melting. Whenever I look at those waterfalls and you hear the roar and you see the floods that they're creating in the grounds below, I just think about the myriad of ways in which the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of heaven, has demonstrated a flood of God's goodness upon all of mankind living in this creation. He causes the sun to shine, the rain to fall. He blesses mankind with every need and so many wants. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, why? So that the goodness of God would bring men to repentance. We live in a world, and the world has always been in existence, enjoying the absolute saturation of God's goodness and mercy upon her. And that's a work of God. So three things in relationship to this chapter, and we'll wrap up this morning. I want to see first just simply the the awareness of our Savior. The awareness of our Savior. It's in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. The, The language of as he passed by is just like very casual. Do you understand that? It's very casual. They're just taking a walk. But as he's going through the natural rhythms of his life with his disciples, he saw. That's a much stronger verb. That's a much stronger verb. The details of the timing of this miracle narrative are actually quite vague, and I believe there's a reason for that. This is the time sometime after the Feast of Tabernacles, yet seemingly before the Feast of Dedication, which is about 90 days later, but yet it seemed Jesus is still in the city. When we left chapter 8 with Jesus slipping away from the religious people who were all going around to pick up stones to stone him, Jesus knew the time of his ultimate suffering was still to come some six months from then. He seemingly vanished and slipped away before violence came his way. But here we find him at some point again in the city. And we find that the energy to take his life has died down. He's walking with his disciples. He's among people. He's specifically walking at this moment leisurely among people with physical maladies. The man notices, he notices blind from birth. And since he's been blind this long, he's most likely seated near the sea gate where he's been taken for years in order to beg for his living. This is what happened even in Jerusalem. If you could not work for a living, you begged for a living. And and it wasn't just the blind seated there. There would have been lame on mats. There would have been mute. There would have been deaf. And they all would have been there seeking to have their needs met by those who could provide their needs. So they're just walking along among a normal crowd on a normal day, entering into the city by the city gates, and Jesus is about to do the will of his Father and notices this blind begging man. It's normal for Jesus to have mercy on hurting, impaired souls. It's natural for him to approach this man and do the bidding of God. But why the blind guy and nobody else? 
on this particular day, at this particular hour. Jesus always does God's will. He had been among hundreds of sick before and healed them all. We've studied that. But this day, God would have the Son of God find and pay attention to just one hurting soul. Maybe we could be so aware in our normal settings of such people in need throughout our weeks. The will of God for us in relationship to hurting people, I believe, is the same as Jesus and the will of God for his own son. We'll discuss this more when we get to verse four, but always prayerfully bear with you the awareness of Jesus in this way the very specific awareness of Jesus in this way. And may I ask you to to entrust yourselves to the promptings of the indwelling spirit of God in your heart. That as you prayer, in prayer, beg God for opportunities to do the works of the Father before men. That sometimes he just does simply prompt your heart to speak to one among many. And when he prompts, just understand that's a divine moment for you actually to do the will of God. Right? So, that's briefly the understanding of our Savior's awareness. But let's look next at his authority. At his authority. We find this in verses 2 through 5. The disciples ask quite a common question. Whose sin, the parents or the blind man, caused his blindness? You see, that sounds like a a very uncommon question to ask. But actually, it was not unnatural for Jesus to hear this question from his disciples. You see, in the rabbinical tradition of this time, they did teach that pregnant women could enter a time of worship, maybe even a, a time of celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, not walking with God. And if they walked into that environment and they were pregnant, that God could actually inflict a physical malady on their baby in the womb if they entered worship not right with God. The same tradition, now I use the word tradition here, not Bible. (laughs) All right, this was rabbinical tradition. The same tradition was held regarding what we would call deadbeat dads today. If the baby's father abandoned the wife and his family, then it was thought the baby born with a birth malady would be due to the father's sin of abandonment. Going further, many Jews at the time did even believe that a baby could sin before birth and therefore incur their own physical dilemma. They take this from Genesis 25. There were a set of twins that duked it out in the womb, remember? They actually taught this. They actually taught and believed that Esau tried to kill Jacob in the womb. And it also caused its own issues, as you know. That's just tradition, though. What does the Bible say about sin and its effects? Very necessary for us to understand this as we seek to do the works of God in a moment God provides for us with a needy person. We know every person and even the whole of creation hurts. We know it groans because of Adam's sin in the garden. You know Romans 8, where even the rocks cry out for salvation from the agonizing oppression of sin in our world. 
The Bible does say the sins of the parents are passed down to the third and fourth generations. It's probably one of the reasons why the disciples asked, and is this the blindness the cause of the parents' sin? But this statement that exists in specific a text like Exodus 20 and verse 5 needs to be understood within its context. Because it's often misunderstood and therefore misinterpreted. This statement, right in the middle of the giving of the Ten Commandments, is in specific relationship to God's declaration to make sure that his children have no other gods before them. His declaration in Exodus 20 about the sins of the parents being passed down to those of the third and fourth generation is one of extreme mercy and patience. God declares that he is patient and merciful to one, two, and sometimes three generations of those who reject him and follow false gods. God's long-suffering is unimaginably patient, but when he's done being patient, he will bring down his judgment upon any generation of unfaithful people at his choosing, at his bidding, and according to his sovereign will. certainly not the case with this man. The Bible does specifically state that one person's sin can bring the judgment of God upon himself. You remember David, right? You remember the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68? The Lord is very specific regarding the consequences of one's prideful actions. You remember Jeremiah 31, 30, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. And you all know Ezekiel 18, 4, the soul that sins, it will what? It will die. Hebrews does tell us, coming into a New Testament context, that the Lord specifically chastens those who he what? Who he loves. And if they don't respond to his chastening, you have 1 Corinthians 11 of people who continue on in their sin, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and Paul says when they do so unworthily, they even endure some physical illnesses and sometimes even death. That's why you are sick and some sleep, he says. Right? So that's true. In 1 Corinthians 5, depends on your interpretation of the text, which is the primary text of church discipline in the New Testament. It's just unrepentant sinner. The church disciplines that soul and turns them over to the destruction of the what? Of the flesh. You've got to figure out what that means. It certainly talks about sin in relationship to the physical body. You remember 1 Corinthians 9, don't you? When Paul is asking these Corinthian people that had been saved out of a life of sexual immorality and hedonistic indulgence, and they're slipping back into it, he comes to them and he says, what? You were some of those things, now stop, come out, because those sexual sins are sins against the what? Against the body. It is what it is, folks. But it's always good to remember those people like Job who suffered and his friends immediately claimed it was Job's sin and it wasn't. 
Paul had a malady. He had a thorn in the flesh. Religious unbelief thought that's why he, after begging God three times to take that physical malady away, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. They believed that his malady was because of his sin. Friends, sometimes we just groan just because of the general influence of sin on our fallen world. There are other passages we consider, but the Lord is an answer to his disciples. Question. He says, no, it's not A, his parents, or B, the blind guy's sin before he was born. Actually, this is kind of a multiple choice question. And Jesus says, it's really not either C, D, or E. If it's F, none of the above. Why is this guy blind? Why can't this, why is this guy never seen the light of day? Jesus is going to give the reason. Do you remember Jesus' reference to the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them in Luke, 8, Luke, Luke 13? He illustrates with that reference something quite simple and true. Jesus clearly stated that a tragedy like a tower falling and killing 18 people at once did not mean they incurred such a tragedy upon themselves because of their sin was more gross in comparison to the sins of other Galileans, Luke says, from the mouth of Jesus. He went on to tell all listening, unless all of you repent who didn't die in that tower accident, you will all likewise perish anyway. You remember all the foolish preachers back in 9-11 who said, certainly the tower fell because God's bringing judgment on the sins of the city of New York. And if you know your Bibles well and you know your God well, your heart just sunk with grief because <laughs> you know how untrue those prophetic utterances were. The reality is, death comes upon all men for all have sinned. Let's let Jesus clarify in this moment what the will of God is as we analyze this opportunity. So with authoritative analysis, Jesus says in John 3 that it was neither his mother nor his father nor any rabbinical reason that this man was blind. He was blind so that. This is a purpose clause in the Greek language. This was the purpose this man was born blind, period. So that the works of God might be displayed, powerful prepositional phrase, in him. In him. Not upon him. So there you have it. God had a plan for this man's life. And that plan included his life intersecting with, a, intersecting with the life of Jesus so he could do the works 
of God upon this man so that within this man, God could do his saving work, change his life. So that this man might believe, born blind, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that in believing he might have life through his name. We find out later that this man is not truly born again until the end of this miracle story. But we know that no man comes unto the Father without the Father drawing his heart. We already learned that in chapter 8, didn't we? So God can just allow that someone be born with a malady so that the works of God can be done within them. The saving work and then other practical spiritual works, right? Living faith, not a dead faith. We show our faith by our works. We'll talk about that later. But Jesus says something here in verse 4 that's really profound. Simply profound. He says, we must do the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. He doesn't say, I must do the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. Remember, he's answering his disciples. He's saying, there's something you need to do with me. And it's the doing of the works of my father. Let's talk about these works. These works are just simply seen in the passage that we've discussed with Jesus' awareness that led him to see this man. Think about how simple this is. That compelled him to interact with this man. So that God can do his work within him. Jesus has said that it is his meat to do the will of his Father that sent him. It's Jesus' nourishment to do so. It's his health. It's his well-being. It's his whole purpose for life, just to do the revealed will of his Father. And doing the will of his Father is doing the works of his Father. And so it's the same for us. And Jesus proves it here by including all of his disciples, those present and in us, with us, with the we. He has the authority to do the will of his Father, and he has the authority to ask you to come along as his children. There will come a time, Jesus is saying, that as we obey God, which is the high ex expression of love for him, God will provide an opportunity to minister the good grace of Jesus through you in the life of a hurting person and in time in that person. If God is so pleased to do a saving work in their heart, praise God. We'll let him take care of that. But in the meantime, we do the will, the works, of our Father is demonstrated with the Son. So when you fill the spiritual routine and simple Christian disciplines of your life, like going to church, serving, worshiping, fanning the flame of your gift and to strengthen the body, the flock, by it, loving your spouse, rearing your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, working with a solid Christian work ethic, 
and all that's part of honoring God in Christ with your life, you will also have to work. You will also have a work that is part of all of those other works of obedience, and that's the work of awareness of folks who hurt, that you can serve, who God can save by even using your service and testimony. Now that's the very practical application of a larger theological truth we've already stated as to why God gives us John chapter 9. But Jesus continues to work these works, he says in the text, while it's daytime. He has the authority to throw some urgency behind it now. He says, night is coming when no one's going to work. The night is just simply the closing of our actual living day-to-day experience because we all have a set time for us when we're going to breathe our last breath. Working the works of God for Jesus was 33 years in length in his human existence on this earth. It could be shorter or longer for some, but regardless, there's an urgency in our Savior's voice here. Our night is coming. Our eyes see light now. There's coming a day we'll breathe our last where they will be closed and it will be darkness. We don't know when that hour is going to be. So Jesus is saying, enjoy all you can enjoy of the good things that this life has to offer, but please don't ever do so at the expense of faithfulness, honoring and obeying God. While he, while he in his schedule provides for you an opportunity to minister to someone who's in a desperate circumstance in their life. And then Jesus reminds them that he is the gold standard when it comes to doing the works of his Father. Go back with me to John chapter 1. Let's just read a couple of verses to refresh our hearts. Right? John says of Jesus Christ in verse 4 of John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines where? In the darkness. And the darkness could not comprehend it. As you go back to John chapter 9, then Jesus qualifies with authority again. He says, listen, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Through the doing of the will of my Father and this specific work, even with this man on this day, that we've come upon in our walk, disciples. His awareness gives way for us to understand his authority and his authority to define what sin is and how it's to be applied in the context. His authority to invite us with him to do the works and his authority to throw behind it some urgency that today could be the day of someone's salvation in your existence. It could be someone who rear-ends you because they're on their cell phone at Ohio Street as you're going south to Bob Evans for lunch right after the service. And they're distraught. 
maybe a little physically impaired. Shortly after I started dating Rhonda, her dad always let us drive his cars, and he was actually in the hospital. We were going to pick him up from the hospital, and this guy hit us. Like a nanosecond later, I don't know if we had ever gotten married. I'd probably been gone. This guy, this guy whacked us, right? I get out of the car. I'm fine. Want to see if Ron is fine. Want to see if the guy who hit us is fine. Guy gets out of the car. He probably, nine, I think, late 80s, 90s. And, and he gets out, and he's got one arm. And he's absolutely distraught. In that moment, what's our flesh doing? But in that moment, what would doing the works of God do? One simple illustration of these random things that I don't think are, are so random in our lives, random to us, but not in God's sovereignty, my friends. Not in God's sovereignty. All that Jesus Christ would be understood to be the Son of God, mind you. People would understand that, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm in desperate need of God's mercy and grace, mind you. But nonetheless, we only have so much time left to do these works, you see. Our night's coming. That's Jesus' awareness, his authority. And then I want to see his effect, not his effect, his effect. In verses 6 to 12, as we close, you'll find no less than five individuals or groups in these 41 verses. All but one are introduced to us in the first 12 verses. Jesus, his disciples, the blind man, his parents, and the blind man's neighbors. Unbelief hasn't entered the picture yet. Religious unbelief, right? Even though the Lord works a miracle in one person's life, there will always be more affected than just that one. Verses 6 and 7, those are the two verses out of 41 that describe the miracle. We'll touch on this just for a moment to get to our greater application here. Much debate has been had over the method Jesus used to heal this man. He spat on the ground, made some mud, applied it to his eyes, told him to go to the southwest part of the city of Jerusalem, to the pool of Siloam, and wash off the mud. And he did, and he returned what? Seeing. He's not saved yet. He's seeing. He did what Elisha told Naaman to do to be cured of his leprosy in 2 Kings 5. It's, it's interesting to me that both, in both situations, obedience was required, or a certain amount of obedience was required, even though the blind man wasn't saved yet. This is the general will of God. Man, by common grace, can live. And by that law, they believe themselves to be saved by just being good people. There's a lot of unsaved people who pray, you know. It's foolish for any of us to say that God doesn't hear or answer their prayers because then someone's going to throw Cornelius' story in the book of Acts in front of your face before he's converted, right? I've heard your prayers God mercifully hears. He may interact and answer quite differently than he would a true child in the faith, but 
But unsaved people can do spiritual things. They're spiritual beings, friends. They're made in the very image of God. They can even do quality acts. Many religious people in our world are faithful people to their church, their cause, their families, their jobs. But the greatest reason for the text is remember verse 39. We've already studied. Moving forward, I believe there are certainly creation illusions here. The creator of the universe did at one time form man in a complete fashion out of the dust of the ground. I mean, Jesus, our creator, uses the dust of the ground to make a physically incomplete man complete with eyesight for the first time in his life. He can do that. He did it. But the guy's not saved yet. I think of all six of our senses, we would give up the most of the quality of our lives to keep or to gain sight. This is a big deal and has a big effect emotionally and practically on these groups of individuals mentioned in the text. The blind man's amazed neighbors are introduced to us here in verse 8. Some were asking if this was truly their neighbor. They were debating about it. Now, that's not our neighbor. It can't be him. They didn't even recognize him. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? One blind from birth would have atrophied eye muscles and even sunken facial features. But now he returns looking as if he'd seen from birth. It's fascinating. Jesus' creative work is all-sided. It's full and complete, and it's made quite a difference. And it's affected quite a few now, physically and emotionally. Everyone wants to know, how have your eyes been opened in verse 10? And the blind man says, some man named Jesus told me to go through this process and I just did it. Instead of giving me a coin for dinner, he put mud on my eyes and I had nothing better to do with my day but go wash the mud off my eyes and I did it. He didn't even tell me if I did that that I was going to see. How merciful and gracious is Jesus. Verse 12, the neighbors asked, well, where is this guy? And he responds, I don't know. He's not aware that the world's redeemer has touched his eyes and caused him to see. How merciful is Jesus. Yes, the working of the works of God can become influential in a moment, to be sure. And even when we work them, in the ways the New Testament outlines us for us to do, and yet the man's not yet born again. It's good for us to learn that obeying and doing the will of God is necessary in our spiritual routines, and even as we take advantage of those set appointments for God for us, and yet still recognize it may be some time before the desired outcome is reached. And like so many times we're told in life to just trust the process, we are entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator while we continue 
to do good things here. So for those of you that have hurting friends and uniquely pained loved ones, and you've been doing the will of God in your life, and you've actually taken the time to do the merciful works of God in the life of this individual you love and care for so much, and your heart's in agony, that it doesn't seem that God's done his work within them yet. Entrust yourselves to God. The judge of all the earth shall do right in relationship to these sweet hurting people. Can I ask you, what are you going through right now that causes you to lose patience with God in the process of waiting on him? Can I encourage you to remember Jesus is the light of the world and, and is always remaining as light in the world among men. Jesus Christ is never immobile. He's never dormant. He's never inactive. He is always omnipotently, omnisciently working out his will as the light of the world in this old dark world. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't even forgotten a sparrow he's created or a flower he's painted in a beautiful field. Jesus is willing to wait a little bit, so much so that he disappeared out of this guy's life knowing that God's working. God's working. So I would encourage you to entrust yourself to him. While you continue to do good things, write 1 Peter 4.19 in the margin of your Bibles here. And if you still feel stuck in life with a unique illness or physical malady, and there seems to be no cure or hope for physical change, please understand the greatest work of God in the life of this man was not for him to receive his sight. Turn with me over to verses 35 and 38 as we close. This is it, right? Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he saw, and now at the end of the text, he finds. He finds him and he says, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, who is he? Remember, this guy's just Jesus. Jesus is just Jesus to him. The guy that put mud on his eyes. Who is he that I may believe on him? That's the purpose of John's writing the whole book, right? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, this is God's work done within him. Lord, I believe. I believe. And he did what? He worshiped him. If Jesus, who is always working his light in the world in his good providence, ultimately used your malady to open up your spiritual eyes and see him like the man in our passage did, has not Jesus done the ultimate work of his Father within you? I mean, if that's what it took, understand his ultimate goal is to reconcile the world unto himself through his Son. And we can entrust ourselves to God to choose to do and to will of his own good pleasure and how he orchestrates the drawing of us, you, your hurting friends, to himself.
And always remember the greatest work of God is always done in his recreative work within us and not just upon us like it's done in these first 12 verses. And Satan's not done distracting the people by the exclusivity of the miracle, is he? You all know, I don't know if it's a church in Indiana, there's thousands of people flocking to this church, right? They've entured, interred, and <laughs> unburied a nun. And they want to take her and bury her in the church. And in uncovering the coffin, they found her that there's just little to no decay. And she's been buried for quite a long time. It's got to be a miracle. And now they consider her retroactively for sainthood. Right? That's an amazing thing. Right? And people are flocking there. And they just want to touch her. So they have to put up a sign, please don't touch our deceased saint. Right? It's okay. But you have to understand, these are well-intentioned people, my friends. This is amazing to them. It's amazing to you if you saw the lady. It's actually quite amazing. But isn't it amazing even more that God in his mercy allows even religious people to be amazed by something like this to again bring them to the reality that this nun still died. And that's the point of this whole text. So that those who think they see would unsee what they think they see as truth and so that their spiritual eyes would be open so that they would see not her but him and his atoning work for their sins on the cross so that they would have relief from the bondage and shackles of their own personal darkness so that they would see Jesus the light of the world. Your ability to work the works of God with a renewed heart in this world will have and is having a tremendous affect in our world. You shine as light, like, like a city set on a hill that cannot be hid, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You let your light so shine that others may see your what? Your good, say it with me, your good works. You do the works of my Father. I, it's connected. And then in time, come to glorify your Father that's in heaven. We used to sing an old Sunday school song. Maybe you sang it too. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? Hide it under a bushel. What? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Do you remember that? Some of us, when we were little kids, we wouldn't say no. We'd say, uh-uh. <laughs> right? And my mom, in her blessed little way of teaching, she let us slide with the uh-uh. Right? And then my mom would add just like a stop, hide it under a bushel. Nuh-uh. I'm going to let it shine. We all could sing it, couldn't we? Maybe we should. I don't know. <laughs> don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine, right? Shine it all over Menor, Painesville, Willoughby, Wycliffe, Willowick, Euclid, Chardon, East Cleveland, Lake, and Jaga County. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Right? You shine 
finitely. As Jesus continues to shine in an infinite fashion, as we join him in doing the works of the Father in these ways. And lo, he will be with us even unto the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the patient, just, sweet, compassionate, life and actions of Jesus. Doing the works of God, joining him in doing the works of God certainly just gives us all kinds of purpose to living life. Help us, O oh Lord, not to be just distracted by all the wonderful things you've given us to enjoy in this world. And then just go through the motions of being holy for your holy. Lord, mm, mm -mm. Lord, please burden our hearts, burden my heart. As we're walking, help us to see. Help us to find. As we enjoy you, being constantly the light of our world may we in a moment be found reflecting that light in Christ's name Amen